Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 214. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and give you the advice we'd wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at B Journeyman on Twitter, flying solo, but always keeping in mind my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. I hope everyone out there is doing well. Uh, Nick and I are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be subscribing. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. I just wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is now live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main pages show notes uh, that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. For example, today's topic is on burnout. And if you wanted to hear more on burnout or see other show notes where we discussed burnout, you could go to episode number 214, uh, find the uh, burnout topic, and then get links to other episode show notes or discussions where we had burnout as a topic. So let me dive right into the introduction to today's episode. Uh, we are interviewing, or more accurately, Nick is interviewing Kate Donovan, host of the Fried the Burnout podcast. This is, believe it or not, a two-part interview series. I wasn't able to make this interview, but I've listened to it and uh, really wish that I had. Kate is a really insightful person and has a lot to say and is very well qualified to talk about this. Just some things that I thought maybe you might want to listen out, uh, listen out for. Differentiating between burnout, depression, and anxiety. The pandemic as an aggravating factor for burnout. Patterns of burnout. Some mitigations that were mentioned. Patterns of seeking help. And some corporate trends. So uh, without any further delay, episode number 214, part one of the Nerd Journey Discussion with Kate Donovan. Kate Donovan, welcome to Nerd Journey. I am so thrilled to be on Nerd Journey. I love everything nerd. Awesome. So do we. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please? So today, I spend most of my time either giving keynote speeches, recording my own podcast, authoring books, and or working one-on-one -on -one with coaching clients who are going through burnout. Everything that I'm doing, the books, the podcast, the speaking, the coaching, all falls under the umbrella of burnout recovery. So that's my, my main focus. I decided also to do, because I love nerding out, I'm doing another degree that I don't need for anything uh, that is basically the study of how stress affects our body from prenatal times to death throughout the course of the lifespan. So I've been spending a lot of my spare time lately doing a lot of research, reading research that when I originally went to school was not available. So now I have access to it and, and can get into it. So I'm spending my time thinking about burnout, dreaming about burnout, talking about burnout, <laughs> writing about burnout. Well, stress has a lot to do with getting to that burnout phase. So it, it can't hurt. And I remember in the conversation that you had with Neil Thompson over at Teach the Geek, 
you studied acupuncture. So this seems like a logical step in learning. That's a great thing. I mean, I think I think people would want that in their coach to know that there's a continued professional development there. A lot of people talk about the research these days. It's really it's sort of popular to be like, well, the neuroscience says. And I did that. And then I thought to myself, you know, I don't really know what the full neuroscience says. So why don't I do a degree in what the neuroscience says so that when I speak about these things, I can speak about them because I've read the research firsthand and I've read the full article and I've done a critique on it for a class and I've really taken the time to make sure that I understand all of these bits and pieces as well as I can at my level. I'm not a neuroscientist, right? And I'm not a neurosurgeon. There are going to be things that I miss. But when we're talking the stress response system in the brain, I've got a pretty good handle on it. Yeah, you're looking for the holistic context points that get people in this scenario. Right. And I I think, Kate, you know, I work in technology, and I think sometimes, especially after listening to your podcast, that burnout, the use of the word burnout may be like the use of the word cloud. We don't always know if someone means the same thing as we do when they say it. So I know you like the level set. If you don't mind, just tell us what is burnout and what is it not? So as of today when we record, which is January 2023, the World Health Organization has an agreed upon definition. And that is to me, we have to start at that point. Whether or not I agree with it is a separate conversation. But the set point is that burnout is the result of chronic stress in the workplace that has been mismanaged or unmanaged. And in order for us to say that a situation is burnout, there must be three things present. One of them is physical and emotional exhaustion. That counts as one thing. Meanwhile, that's like 700 symptoms, but okay. The second one is cynicism and detachment. So being negative, feeling like you can't connect to people at work, to your family, etc. And then the third one is listed in a couple of different ways in a couple of different places, but boils down to feeling like your work is not impactful, having low productivity, and feeling a lack of appreciation for what you do and why it matters. There's a more holistic version than what's written on the World Health Organization website. So these three factors all have to be present in order for somebody to say, yes, this is burnout. And according to the World Health Organization definition, and this is the part that I really disagree with, the the thing that differentiates burnout from, say, depression in their mind is that burnout is about your workplace. It's a workplace syndrome. Oh. Which is total nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> but they have to they, ha- they don't know how to differentiate it yet and last week on LinkedIn somebody posted something that said um here are the words that I wish we could get rid of in 2023 you know one of these like really controversial posts mm-hmm. and the last one was burnout she's like I wish we would just admit that we're depressed and like why are we so afraid of saying we're depressed and I was like well it's not really the same thing and there are the the tricky part is there are things that overlap within them but there are also things that overlap between depression and anxiety And those are not the same thing either. So I think that we don't actually know enough about the neuroscience or about the gut microbiome or about how stress sits in the body long term to be able to really wiggle out very straightforward differentiators between this and that. But I've experienced them both at different times. So my own experience says these are different things. And do you feel like... 
people often believe they're burned out when they experience one of those things and they just say, oh, I'm burned out and make that assumption? When I burnt out was 2016. Well, when I realized I was burnt out, rather, it was 2016. And at that time, I hadn't really even heard the word burnout. So I think it it wasn't something even six, seven years ago that was commonly said at all. And now it's part of our normal lingo. So I think people are saying it when they're tired. And that's definitely not the same thing. And I think that people are not saying it when they're when they should. So I think people are overusing it and underusing it at the same time. Okay. Makes sense to me. Any thoughts on what might keep someone from realizing they were burned out earlier before they reach that point of, I don't know if I want to call it rock bottom, no return, but just complete overwhelm with it? Have you ever had, you're going through your life, you're sitting at your desk all day and you start to have a little bit of hip pain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So your hip starts hurting and you're like, oh, it's from sitting in this chair. And you don't go to the doctor for, for your hip pain necessarily. It doesn't bother you too much. It's only there when you sit too much. So you put a little cushion underneath you when you sit down and you try to get up at least once an hour to sort of stretch it out. And, you know, two months later, your hip isn't really much better, but it's not really much worse. And you've sort of gotten used to it. And you have all these like mechanisms that you've put into place to, to make it better. And then you don't realize that these things are connected, but your neck starts hurting. And so you start adjusting your neck and you put your mouse at a different place and you get an under the, the desk keyboard drawer so that you're more ergonomic and you and you're, you're making all these adjustments. And so you're kind of like, all right, well, this is a little bit better and it still hurts, but I'll be OK. And then two months later, you start having migraines and then they start being consistent. And then all of a sudden you're like, I have to go. This is not normal. Meanwhile, had you really dealt with the hip pain? seven months ago, we might not be in this situation. I think burnout is much the same. A lot of the stressors that that come into our lives, we create coping mechanisms for, and they mostly work. So we don't really notice that it's happening because we've put something under our seat and we've adjusted our desk level and we've, we're, we're making all of these tiny adjustments all the time. So we don't really notice that something is wrong until we're unable actually unable to do our work or to get through a day or to wake up and feel any motivation. So I think it's really normal. And I I think people get judged a lot for, well, why didn't you pay attention sooner? And I don't think we should judge people for that. I think it's human nature to have a problem and adjust around it. That's what we do. That's just normal. Yeah. We just adapt because we're flexible beings and and that's okay. So I think we have to give people a little bit more grace around this idea that, well, why didn't you notice before you got to this stage? Well, because, you know, I was a little more irritable, but there was a little more going on at work. And then, you know, all these little things happened. This is an aggregation of a lot of little things. It is. I remember reading Chasing Excellence and they were talking about improving cycling and they wanted to improve efficiencies by 1% and all the stuff yeah. they went through. And it's it's sort of like this is a different direction. Small yes. tweaks, small detriments. Yes. And they they are sometimes as small as, and I say this on my podcast all the time, it's like a a tagline of the podcast at this point is you ignore your bladder signals when you have to pee, right? Like it's, that sounds like a simple thing, but if you do that all day, every day, your body starts to get tense. That tenseness tells your body that you are stressed. 
The only thing you're doing is writing three more emails instead of going to the bathroom. But when you do that all day, every day, it becomes part of a pattern. What do you ignore next? Next, you start ignoring drinking water because you don't want to have to go to the bathroom because you're holding it anyway because you don't want to interrupt your emails. So now you're dehydrated, right? So again, where this, it just is this series of, of missteps. None of them have to be very serious or with any sort of malintent. You're just trying to get your work done. Right. And that's that's become a little bit more of a focus since the pandemic hit. A lot of people working from home. Yeah. A lot of people working more. And a lot of people not having that opportunity. I don't agree with needing a commute. I mean, I, I totally understand not wanting to spend the time going to and from work, so I'm not suggesting it. But it did get you up, showered, dressed, and out of your house, walking at least to your car, and then from your car to an office, and then getting up from your desk at the end of the day and having a ritual that broke up your working day from your home day. We don't have those things anymore. That's a little dangerous. We need those rituals. We need those transitions. One of the things that I often recommend to clients that work from home, which initially they're like, really, you want me? That's what you want me to do? Shut down your computer fully when you finish your day. Don't let it go to sleep. Shut it off. And then take a shawl or a blanket or something and cover your computer with it as an indication that your day is over. And you're not going to Take the blanket off or take the shawl off or take the scarf off the computer until it's time to sit down and get back to work. There, there's a, it's a closing ceremony of some sort. We don't have a shutdown routine to turn no. it off at the end of the day. No. Or we've lost sight of really having one because you transition from, okay, I phone. left my laptop powered on. I go to my phone over here. It's always with me. Exactly. Do you recommend the same with the phone? Like leave it in a different room or... I would say yes, but I'm terrible at that, so that would be hypocritical. <laughs> well, right now, as we're recording this, I can say that my phone is in a different room and on silent. So my my phone is on silent always because I have ADHD and I can't uh, the the dinging I can't. Sure. And it is flipped down in a drawer in my desk, even though I can't see in the drawer. It's still flipped down. There you go. But as soon as we finish, it's going to be the first thing. That's <laughs> the first thing you check. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. What did I miss on Facebook in the past hour and a half? I know I need to use the restroom or get a drink, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so great. If it was a normal work day, I don't... I think I'd have my phone in here, for sure. And I don't even yeah. know that it would be in a drawer, necessarily. But I would try not to be distracted by it. I'm curious about some of those patterns. Since you work with so many people on burnout recovery, do you see any specific industries that burnout has plagued the most? Really fascinating is that event planning is always on the top five list of most stressful works. Like we, we kind of know like doctors, nurses, this has been studied for a really long time. <laughs> event planners are really, really high in the list. Vets and dentists in the world of doctors are higher on the list than just about anybody else. But even in the tech world, we're looking at 52% at a minimum of people that or say that they are at either at the edge or burnt out already. Over half. Oh my, that yeah. is. You're right though about we didn't really talk about it before several years ago. I don't think I heard anybody in the tech industry talk about it before around 2017 time period. And then there were some panels on it. People were sharing their stories and it's a little more accepted to 
share what you did and and how you did it. Yeah. In the tech world, so much of your work doesn't require a lot of human connection. And human connection is a protective factor, even if you're an introvert. Human human connection is a protective factor against burnout and is a longevity factor and a happiness factor over the course of your entire life. And you might love the fact that you can work with your computer all day, every day, and you don't have to deal with people, but long term that works against you. Wasn't there a TED Talk out there that said one of the biggest determinants of how long someone would live was connection? Yes. And Harvard just finished, I believe, at the very end of 2022, or maybe just now in January, finished an 85-year study on longevity and and happiness within longevity. And the most important factor was connection. When we're talking about connection right now, do you mean in person, like I need to be with people, or even just what you and I are doing kind of on a screen share? I think they both count, but I think the most important part, and I have not read the research fully, so I could be absolutely lying. This is a, this is a projection based on things that I've read in the past. The, the idea of connection and community is around feeling safe and accepted and that you belong somewhere. So we're having a cool conversation, but I'm probably not going to call you if I have a crisis. Probably not. Probably not, right? No, no offense. It's yeah, just, you know, we're, we're not at that stage yet, Nick. Um, maybe we will be someday. And so I, I think this understanding that you're not going to be alone in really harsh times and knowing that there are going to be people that are going to gather around you and support you when if things go haywire, I think this is the most important piece of it. And so this is lovely, but is not getting us where we need to go. And that kind of connection requires people to know each other long enough and be in each other's lives long enough and go through enough ups and downs together to have confirmation that that belonging is is real. And when we're not in each other's lives as much anymore, I, I'm not a churchgoer by any stretch, but I do understand that the the breakdown of the church community is an issue on that belonging scale for a lot of people. Because even if they weren't really big believers, they went to the same place every week and saw the same people. And you feel like you're a part of a community. And when somebody's house catches on fire, like the, the church is the one that, you know, did some sort of fundraising or whatever it is. Now it's go fund me online. You don't even know these people that are giving you $25. You know, so it's the, the you're we're missing this like, you know, this is very Brené Brown, but we're missing this belonging piece, belonging to each other. It's similar with you, know, you marry into a family and yeah. you have that realization one day like, oh, wow, my father-in-law treats me like I'm his son. You know, it's great. Yeah. And not everybody has that experience. Right. Right. With their in-laws, not everybody has that experience with their own families. 100%. So we really have to be choosy about the people that we're going to surround ourselves with, there's when people are talking about the stress response, very often they're saying, well, you know, it was built because if you saw a tiger, you needed to be able to fight or flight. But there's a massive missing piece that, that people aren't discussing. And it's that being in actual physical danger, physical harm danger, was only one of the things that made you really fearful and triggered your stress response. The other incredibly big factor was being ostracized because we used to live in communities of 50, 100, 150 people max, right? Our communities didn't get bigger than 150. When they did, they would split off and create a new community. If you are designed to be part of a community that's say 80 people, everybody's got their function, mm -hmm. right? And they help you be fed and they help you sleep well and they help you all the things you need to do. If you are ostracized, 
and you've only ever learned your skill, you now have no way to protect yourself. You have no way to gather food. You have no way to feed yourself. You have no way to cook anything. You have no way. Being ostracized was just as dangerous as being chased by a tiger. And it seems like that's been very much overlooked. Very much. In a lot of just books you read. And oh, that's a great point. Yeah. This belonging piece is critical. You can belong to only a couple of people. It doesn't need to be a hundred. It can be two. It can be one that you really belong. I mean, it doesn't have to be a massive community, but you do need to have a space where you as you are accepted full on for who you are. And you can mess up and you know you will still be loved. You might be told off, but you know you'll be loved anyway. It seems like many people in the workforce are looking for that in a place to work work for a team or within an organization where they belong like you said i can mess up but i can learn from it and i know i'm not just going to get fired tomorrow because i made one small mistake yeah this is psychological safety right and it's a huge area of study right now as far as workplace development is is concerned and workplace culture is concerned are you seeing a lot of mismatches in the way people want to work versus the way they are forced to work that leads to some of these problems? So the, th the mismatch that's more critical than how you want to work and how you're being forced to work. If you're being forced to work a way that you don't want to in today's day and age, go get another job. Like we can't make every single work environment work for every single worker because every single worker needs something different. So if the majority of people are cool with the way things are and you're not, Go somewhere else. Get out of there. So I think that's really important that that's uh, we can't always put all of the responsibility on the company or the business. We, we have to own the fact that we're choosing to show up someplace. That's one thing. But there is a ton of research. And this is Christina Moslock and Michael Leader and, you know, the big burnout researchers of our time. They've been doing this for 40 plus years. One of the six main factors that they notice in the workplace that leads to burnout is a values mismatch. So a values mismatch can become evident in a we want you to work that way and you want to work this way space, right? Because your value is to be home with your family and their value is for you to be connected to people at work. It's more a values mismatch than a method mismatch, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. That, right. that makes a lot of sense because the values determine the method. Exactly. So the values are actually more important than the method. We have to go one level underneath that to really understand this process. And the other thing about a values mismatch is a values mismatch can be between a company and a person, but it can also be between a company's spoken values and a company's values in action. What are they doing versus what are they saying? If those things don't match, a lot of the employees are going to have a values mismatch with them because they're lacking integrity. Right. So this is a huge factor in burnout. If you have this company that's like, yay, we do all of these things to support you. Also, 16 hour days are great. And you're like, wait a second. Yeah. You're lying to me. That's not I don't want to be lied to. Do you think I'm stupid? Like, why are you treating me like this? Right. So the values mismatch can be in, in two different places. And I think it's important to point that out because people like it's really easy to imagine that as someone who has been studying health since I graduated high school. I started as a pre-med. I, I mean, it's been 23 years that I've been studying health. I'm probably not going to go work for Philip Morris because yeah. there's a clear values mismatch there. Yep. Right. Probably not going to do it. But there are much more subtle factors at play 
that we are not necessarily paying attention to that I think we need to sometimes take a moment to hone in on. Yes. If you think about what we talked about in the last few minutes, that's twice we've come back to root cause analysis. What's the real cause of this? The values mismatch, the small hip pain that we didn't do anything about that aggregates up to, okay, now I have to go to the doctor because I can't do anything. I love the peeling back of the layers, getting to the root cause. And is is that root cause analysis, I imagine that's probably the some of the way toward recovering from burnout. What about preventing burnout? Because I've heard you mention that those are very different because you're going to be in different stages. I'm curious what your what your comments are on that one. So I'll start by saying that if you know that you are a naturally high-stress person, focusing on burnout prevention is probably a decent plan. However, I don't really believe in burnout prevention because most of the time we're not aware that it's happening. That's like saying that everybody should be on a cancer prevention diet. Like, yeah, probably. But probably we we should, but the chances that we're going to do that before there are some signs are really minimal. So if there are already some signs, then now we already have to talk about treatment. So burnout prevention tools are stress management tools. There's no difference. That's just what they are. Very simple. And I think people uh, people go into corporations with their burnout prevention toolkits and and like you know, corporate workshop burnout prevention. And they sometimes get hired more frequently than I do because I refuse to call it burnout prevention. (laughs) I refuse to use the buzzword on it because the people that are already sick, that are already burnt out, that are already have cancer need chemo. They're already burnt out. They need treatment. Mm -hmm. The prevention is not going to get us anywhere. So stress management is burnout prevention. Burnout recovery, on the other hand, requires unwinding layer upon layer of those adaptations, those coping mechanisms, those minor shifts that you've been making probably since you were four to please other people, to be a perfectionist, to not have boundaries, to never say no, to to unwinding all of these things and creating a better system for yourself. So burnout recovery really, really requires sort of bearing yourself like undoing all of the layers that you have put on for protection over the years that you thought were going to keep you safe that have now become too heavy a sweatsuit to wear all the time. So it's a much, much, much different idea. Now that you put it that way, when when you're talking about the prevention, it's like trying to prevent people from becoming criminals. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought of. Right. So I think the true prevention, if I'm going to be really honest, I've created a, a holistic board of what makes people vulnerable to burnout overall, right? Mm -hmm. And the biggest shift we could make if we had control over it would be for everyone to grow up in a family that loved them, that there be no, that there be secure attachment in most situations, that we learned emotional intelligence as we grew. And that's just, listen, you, everyone, it's probably just not going to happen. That's not, it's not likely to happen. I grew up in a very low income city in Massachusetts. People that I know, the family that I grew up in, the families that were around me, they don't have time to think about these things. They are just trying to feed their children more than twice a day. We can't expect people that do not have the skills or the resources to make the kind of shift we need them to make so that people don't burn out 30 years later. 
Right. They're not thinking about that at all. No, they don't they don't even understand they, they don't have the concept of that that can turn into that because they don't have the mental capacity for it. Not because they're not smart enough. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with resources. Yeah. And priorities. Like you said, if the priority is yeah. I need to feed my family, that's the priority. Like you got to right. fulfill that well, before you can do the other stuff. And we're stuff. back to resources because if you had enough food, if you had enough money to have enough food, you wouldn't that then that's not the priority anymore because it's taken care of. So I think that if we're looking at overall root causes, we are looking at a combination of your health, your constitution, how you were born, your genetics, your epigenetics. We're looking at your family of origin, how you were spoken to, what kind of coping mechanisms you created to survive and feel safe. We're looking to the cultural mechanisms that either protected you from or enhanced those coping mechanisms. And then we're saying in, in the world of burnout, everybody's like, well, you have to fix the corporate structure. It's burning everybody out. And I'm like, whoa, listen, I do that. I go into corporations and I help them adjust. So I do think it's useful, but it's only one part of the picture. Right. It's only one piece of the puzzle, only one point of context. Yes, just one. There's a really fascinating piece of research, more than one piece, this has been repeated, that if a mother is pregnant with a daughter and has a very high stress event during her pregnancy, it is possible that there is an epigenetic shift in the fetus that makes her stress response less apt to function at a normal level. So now you're supposed to tell me that I'm just supposed to like go to a better workplace and it's going to be fine. No, I only have 70% capacity and nobody told me. But you want me to act 100% like everybody else and I don't have it. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, luckily for men, this is typically passed down through the mother, the mother's line and on, on the female side. Man, that makes it hard. That makes it hard. Right. And so then that it doesn't mean that you're stuck like that forever. Those things can shift because an epigenetic change is like if you take a, a piece of DNA, epigenetics don't go into the DNA and change it. They sit on top of the DNA and say, like, turn this on, turn this off, turn this off just a little bit. You know, they kind of they're like a, a volume lever on a DNA chain. So they're just saying, well, more of this or less of that. So if it says less of that, you can shift these things, but shifting those things requires safety, belonging, the ability to receive love, a lot of meditation, things like good exercise, good movement, healthy movement, good food, right? And if you don't know you have this, so say you're born and you're at 70% capacity. Mm -hmm. So now you're more stressed out than anybody else all the time because- right. That's your baseline. Because that's your baseline. And so you create coping mechanisms around eating and drinking. And so you're not getting the things that you need, but you don't know that you need them. And now you're just judging yourself for not being able to do the same amount of stuff as other people, which is making it worse. And happen to grow up in a family maybe where there was addiction or alcoholism or abuse or something else. Like, good luck. Wow. So if you're in that situation, what has to happen for you to decide, okay, I need some help with this from somebody? When you really reach an edge of burnout, most people that burn out, and this is my own personal observation over the past seven years, most people that burn out are DIY type people. So okay. your first stage is going to be like, well, I'll just figure this out by myself because I can do it all alone, which is why you're here in the first place. Turn the knobs yourself, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
the first stage is probably going to be figuring out what you can do on your own. So you'll find a podcast like mine or you'll find other info. You'll read a couple of books, the, the Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily Nagoski and her sister. And, you know, you'll dig into some of this information. And then six months or eight months will pass by and you'll be like, I still don't feel right. This is when people start looking. I think the things that can help you are vast. I think therapy, if somebody, if the therapist is trauma-informed and, and understands burnout, because not everyone does, and that's not their fault. They When they went to school, this wasn't a thing. So if there's trauma-informed and burnout written on somebody's website as a therapist, they can probably help you. Coaches can help. And while this is my job and I feel like I do a good job at it. You have to be really careful. Coaching is not regulated. And I think that regulating things isn't always, that's a bigger conversation for another time. But you do have to be careful and you have to be around someone long enough to feel like you can actually trust them. This for me is one of the reasons that I have fried. If you don't trust me after listening to 180 hours of me speaking, you're never going to trust me. Please don't hire me. I'm not your person. And that's okay, because part of burnout recovery requires that you feel safe. If you're not going to trust me and you're not going to feel safe with me, we're not going to make progress. You need that belonging that we were talking about. You need the belonging. Exactly. It has to be there. So you, it can be therapy. It can be coaching. It can be community work. It can be kind of getting yourself into working, volunteering at a soup kitchen, which sounds like extra work at first, but you become part of this community, you create belonging for yourself, you create safety for yourself. And then sometimes that allows you to go work with somebody else. You can do yoga and rapid transformational therapy and EDMR. And, you know, there's a, a million ways to begin your recovery. During the recovery process, the thing that you need to know most, the things that you need to know most, number one, you need to feel safe. Number two, there are going to be coping mechanisms and things that you think are quote unquote just your personality that are going to need to shift. You're going to have to let go of some of these things. Somebody recently wrote in the Facebook group that's attached to the podcast said, well, you know, I'm just worried about going back to work because I'm a give it 200% kind of person. I said, not anymore. You're not. You can't be that person anymore. That's what got you here. Exactly. You have to find a way to be okay with being like maybe a 110% person instead of 200%. I'd kill for 80, but like if we can get you down to 110, I'll be real happy. You can't hold on to and maintain identity with the pieces of your personality, personality slash trauma response slash coping mechanism, because those all get mixed into the same bag of tricks. You can't hold on to the coping mechanisms that got you here. And I don't want to demonize them either. Number one rule in fried burnout coaches, because I don't work alone. Number one rule is we never demonize our clients coping mechanisms. When you created them, they were useful. They were likely useful for another 20 years because you would not have repeated them if they didn't work. But now something in the system has changed. It's hurting you more than it's helping you. And it's time to make a change. I don't want to go into like a, any serious coping mechanisms, but say, you know, every time you wanted to reward yourself, you got rewarded as a child, you got ice cream. So you created this habit of when you feel like you deserve something, you have ice cream. And so all of a sudden now you're having ice cream like twice a day because you're like killing it. You know, you have ice cream and you have more ice cream, you have more ice cream. You stop eating lunch and dinner because you're having ice cream instead because you're so fabulous. That coping mechanism over time 
creates diabetes, weight gain, you know, poor gut bacteria, la la la. So that's just a, a way to describe how that happens. But you do it initially because it feels good and, and it works. Nobody became a perfectionist just because. They became a perfectionist because they did it a few times and got praised for it. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. And what you're talking about is like, I need to screw in this Phillips head screw. I just happen to have a flathead screwdriver. And it's worked so many times, but I actually wore the grooves out and now I can't. I can't yes. screw it into the board anymore. Yeah, it's not working anymore. And so we don't demonize that you did it in the first place because you probably needed it to protect yourself. That's okay. Say thank you for how much it was able to accomplish. But now look at your life and you might choose one or two places where it's still really useful. Like if you have perfectionist tendencies and you're a neurosurgeon, I might want you to keep that while you're in surgery. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, like that's fine. Like even, you know, my tax accountant, like if you could be a perfectionist while you're doing my numbers, that would be really cool. Yeah. You know, I want everything to be done well there. But does that mean you have to be perfectionist about how your shirts are folded and how you finished that email and if you worded that one thing perfectly? No, no. So let's find where you can still use it, where it's really useful in your world and where we need to start implementing another way. Are you seeing... A lot of companies offer more of the resources and access to therapies and coaching for overall wellness now that they understand, or maybe they don't understand, some of the impacts that burnout is causing within their organizations or just stress in general? I think right towards the end of the pandemic, we had a big upswing. And now people are still afraid of the recession that seems to sort of like semi not be happening. Mm-hmm. But people are still afraid, especially in companies, so they've stopped spending as much money. And the first thing that they cut out is employee resources, which is a little bit backwards, but, you know. Um, so I do think there was a huge uptick during COVID times, and I think that there are some companies that have made dedicated commitments and promises that really mean it, that are still digging in. And then there are some that are like, maybe in five years. Oh, wow. It's a tough one. It's really hard. And some companies already had a pretty decent culture. Not every company out there has a has a terrible company culture. So some of the people that have a better culture might think that they're okay and don't need to do this right now. But the fact of the matter is, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, burnout is not just a workplace issue. One of the reasons burnout went so high over the past couple of years is because dealing with the pandemic was hard. It was emotional. It created the need of every coping mechanism we've ever had and a bunch that we never knew we needed and threw us all into emotional tailspins for a couple of years. And now all of that stuff is coming out. Now things are settling enough where you can actually like deal. You don't deal with these things in the moment. Nobody had the wherewithal. Duct tape's not going to get it done here. Duct and duct tape's not going to get it done. Not even with a hairdryer or WD-40. It'd be a mess, though. It would. <laughs> it is a mess, a little bit, to be honest. 100%. I think there are some people that are really trying, but I think a lot of people are, are still waiting for the bomb to hit. So they're not doing the burnout prevention. They're saying, oh, only 5% only of our people are experiencing burnout. It's not worth it yet. And then it's going to go up and it's going to go up and it's going to go up. And then they're going to say, oh, we need this massive intervention. And I'm going to be like... Well, that's going to be expensive. Yeah, and it's not a quick fix, guys and gals. 
It's going to take no. time to make progress. No, the people that I know that are working in the corporate space, like myself, I sometimes do a speaker series that will do that is um, three talks over a series of six months. And in between, there are question and answer sessions for what did we talk about last time? What are you implementing? What do you need help with, et cetera? And that's considered short form. But the people that I know now are doing 12, 24, and 36 month interventions. And they're charging half a million, three quarters of a million, one and a half million to implement this work because they need eight people on their teams to do it. That it's not you can't you can't implement a thing like this in a company by yourself when all the leadership needs coaching, for instance. You've got forty people to coach for three years is you need help. Yeah, that's untenable. It's untenable. Then the person that's dealing with the burnout is gonna burn out. A hundred percent. Which is not useful for anybody. Not at all. Are people who burn out and end up getting to some sort of recovery or better state, would you say that they're more likely to burn out again? Yes. The simple answer is yes. I have to keep my finger on the pulse most of the time because my natural coping mechanisms are to overdo it, ignore my body, be a perfectionist, please everyone around me, not say no. And so when I find myself in those positions... And when I know that I'm sort of my major sign physically is I start getting neck pain. My emotional sign that I talk about all the time that I think is incredibly important is resentment. When I start being resentful more often than not, Mm -hmm. I'm not in a good space. And that means I have committed myself to too many things. I'm not happy about the way that they're paying me back. Don't feel like it's an even exchange. So now... I have to do an assessment and feel and realize what things I need to drop off. So for instance, I just got an email recently asking me to be part of a summit and it is during a week where I already have two keynotes. Two keynotes is a full week of work. People think, oh, you get paid so much for an hour. No, it's not an hour. I prep for like 40 hours for a keynote, first of all. And then when you do it, you're so tired after that you need a day and a half to recover. <laughs> so so I have two keynotes in the same week and the summit is the same time as these keynotes. And I asked, you know, is it going to be like a paid or a free summit? She's like, well, it will be free at first and then people can buy access later. And I was like, so you want me to commit 45 minutes of my time 15 minutes now and then 45 minutes later, 15 minutes to just chat with me and see if it's a good fit, then 45 minutes to do this interview for you to sell a summit on your website that I make nothing from. And you're already doing these two other things which you know will drain your energy. Which I know will drain my energy and which are absolutely 100% in front of the people that are my quality leads. That's why I take those jobs and that and they pay me. But you know, you have to make money. You have to make money. Some Somebody's got to feed me. When I was reading the email, I noticed that I started to get a little bit irritated about it. I didn't even say yes yet, and I was already a little bit resentful. To me, that's a beautiful thing. Because as soon as I see that resentment, I'm like, oh, I don't actually want to do this. If I do this, I'm going to be mad about it. I don't want to do things I'm, not, I'm going to be mad about. Right. That's not good energy for me to bring to her space. If I'm going to do something like that, I want to show up the way I'm able to show up today. I'm happy to be here. I was excited to talk to you. I like what you're doing. So I'm happy to show up and be here fully and be engaged in it. If I'm not going to do it that way, then I don't want to do it because that brings bad energy to her space. And it means that I'm not in integrity with myself. Yep. Mismatch in value. So I was like, mm, you know what? I, th- I thought about it. No. Three years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say no. 
well, six years ago now, I guess I, I'm exaggerating, but I wouldn't have been able to say no. Oh, she's asking me for something. I should help. That's a good point. The being able to say no, y you actually had to kind of say no to your acupuncturist business at some point, right? Yeah. That's a hard thing to do. This was a big one. Yeah. And this is a, a, something that a lot of people with burnout go through that they have to release a previous way of working, which often means releasing an identity, which comes with a certain level of grief. There is a grieving process that you have to go through with this. So for me, I was an acupuncturist for 13 years. I moved back to the States. I was planning on opening an office right away. I couldn't because I ruptured my Achilles and could not stand. Ouch. <laughs> so it took me, it took me a while to be able to start investing in opening an office. Once I did it, I was just starting to get enough like patients to, you know, not be in debt all the time. And COVID hit and we were shut down for four months. And then things started to open up, but people were still nervous. And so it was kind of this like back and forth. And then we got shut down again. And then I was like, this is too much of a fight. This is not working right now. And coaching and speaking is working. And you asked a question within it, did I wait until it was sort of like enough? It was definitely not enough. That first year, I think I made like $22,000. <laughs> so no, it wasn't enough. But holding on to the acupuncture meant that I was spending two full days a week going into New York City, commuting 45 minutes into New York City. Once I'm going to be in the city, I'm going to be there all day. So I'm getting there at 10. I'm getting home at 9. And then I can't do anything else those days. There's no coaching. There's no workshops. There's no speaking. There's nothing. So now I'm down to three days a week where I can do things. And it just was a smarter decision for me to throw all my eggs in this basket and really try and make this part of things work. But will I open an acupuncture office again in the future? Who knows? It's possible. Acupuncture is really good for mental health and stress. So it's kind of like crazy to not have one. So you said no, it just meant no right now, not no yeah. forever. That's an important distinction. I think it's really hard for anyone who has done something for a really long time to decide to lay it down. Like if something happened yeah. in my life where I had to say, you know what, I can't do Nerd Journey anymore, I'd be bummed. I'd be yeah. sad because, you know, almost five years, right? It would be super hard, but I, I understand people have to do what they have to do to be in a better state. And I think even though it was a not right now for me, I treated it as a this is over because I needed to allow myself to actually go through the grieving process and not be sitting in those emotions for the next five years wondering if I needed to close the door. The only thing that I did was my continuing education unit so I could keep my license. <laughs> like That's the Smart. only thing that, that I managed to do. The rest of it, I was like... I have to say goodbye to this right now because I can't be both feet into building this business if I've still got a toe over there. Well, I really hate to cut off the uh, interview there, but that's the end of part one of our discussion. Just some things that I, you know, kind of jumped out at me. The official definition of burnout that's available from the World Health Organization 
kind of the incremental creep of neglecting one's health as the path or a path to burnout. Her emphasis on the importance of rituals and transitions is definitely something that kind of fell by the wayside during the pandemic when more and more people were working remotely, didn't have the need to wake up by a certain time, take a shower by a certain time, get out the door to make it to work by a certain time. Oh, we're in a meeting room and this meeting room is booked after the end of our meeting, so we have to end it and we have to walk away. Just those kinds of things really rang true for me. The discussion of community as a mitigating factor for burnout, that reminded me a lot about some discussions I've heard about PTSD mitigation and how people feeling part of a community and feeling connected to other people and feeling a sense of belonging and safety is basically a, a really strong counterindication of of getting a post-traumatic stress disorder. So I, it just made me wonder about that connection between burnout and post-traumatic stress disorder. A little bit about the treatment, you know, getting away from coping mechanisms without uh, demonizing those coping mechanisms. That is really, I think, surprising to me. The idea that, you know, hey, you know, honoring the things that helped us survive, but also realizing that they aren't the way that we have to act to move forward and, and maybe shouldn't be the way that we act moving forward. And then jumping forward to the idea of releasing, releasing a way of working, that coping mechanism is the same as releasing kind of part of one's identity that just, it was so shocking to hear for me, you know, to realize that those are the things that I kind of felt like I was going through and the things that I needed to release in order to to not burn out and to get away from burnout. It's just super insightful. Some of the, the corporate trends and, you know, unfortunately, the idea of cutting some of the mental health and support mechanisms that kind of sprang up during the pandemic, you know, just as people are kind of only now getting over some of the trauma that happened during the pandemic and and also facing maybe a little bit more uncertainty during an economic downturn. You know, really unfortunate to hear that that's a trend. But I think that that's it for this episode. Uh, make sure that you tune in next week for part two of our discussion with Kate Donovan. Uh, just a reminder again that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. This burnout episode is a prime example. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. So farewell listeners, tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at VJourneyman. Once again, for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off.